And thank you, you guys. That's just delightful. I could listen to the four of you for hours. It was beautiful. Thank you very much. I'll uh, reiterate, we have a great opportunity to partner with many organizations in our city on June 4th, Serve Day. To sign up, you need to go online and go to our website and pick an opportunity. There are many opportunities. And this is a way of making the reign of Christ visible and doing what we say in Jeremiah chapter 29, which is work for the welfare of the city in which God has placed you. God has placed you here, and because we're here we partner with those uh, who are seeking to make our city uh, a place of healing and hope uh, for others. And so I hope you'll join me on that day. It'll be a great day. And we're anticipating fanning out all across the region, 50 different organizations waiting for our help in different ways. And so uh, thank you in advance for your participation. Acts 13 is where we are this evening. And I'm going to start by asking you a question. How many have ever watched this guy named Rick Steves on television? Has anybody in here watched him before? Sorry, the name, he, this guy is a travel guy. He's local, but he does things nationally uh, and is on uh, public television often on Channel 9 in our area, talking about Italy and Switzerland and all over. He travels Europe, basically, that's what he does. And so many years ago, five maybe, I watched him do a piece about uh, the Dolomites, which is northern Italy, southern Alps, and go, hiking up to a hut, having a meal, and enjoying the beauty of the Dolomites. Great, you know, and you watch it, and the, 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 there's music playing, the food and the interviews, and the cheese and the wine, it's all great. And then, in 2014, I had sabbatical, and I actually hiked to these huts, right? And so I end up in one of the huts that was on TV. Here's what I'm here to tell you. Like when you actually go, it's harder than watching on TV. Did you know that? It's harder. <laughs> we had a high, we gained about uh, 3,000 feet of elevation. And you're carrying a pack. You're hiking seven or eight miles in. That's, that's a workout. It was a warm day. You get there, you're hungry. It's harder. And you're cold because the sun goes down and it's, it's high up and you're underdressed. That's my problem. But uh, it's so cold, tired, it's harder. And here's the other thing. It's better, way better, way better than watching on TV. You're in this hut. You're eating a meal of people from all over the world. And, they, and this food that they bring is, I still, I still think about it. It's been two years. There's this big bowl of pasta. It was the be second best pasta I've ever had. Uh, a bowl of pasta filled with uh, local cheese that's melted throughout and crispy onions, kind of caramelized onions, and bacon on top of that. Is, I mean, what could be better than that? And I'm, I'm eating this and I go, I don't need to eat anything ever again. I'll just eat this the rest of my days. It'll be fine. And you know, a glass of wine and it's just a good, it's just a, it's a good time. And then, and then the meal's over. Sun is going down. Go out and watch the sunset over the western ridge of these Alps. And there's a river valley. And I'm sitting on the edge of a rock. And the river valley drops back down another 3,000 feet as we come up. Here, go, now we'll go down tomorrow. 
and down through this river valley, and I'm watching the river, which is now lit by the sun before the sun disappears. There's a holy moment where God spoke to me about some things in my life. It was just a whole thing. The whole thing was over-the-top amazing, harder than watching on TV and better than watching on TV. And here's why I share the whole story with you, because I'm convinced that we live in a culture increasingly preoccupied with vicarious experiences. Do you know what I mean by that? In other words, we love to... Uh, experience through what other people are experiencing. And to the extent that this ekes into our discipleship, we can think that we're following Jesus without going anywhere. We're here, uh, we gather here, we go to Bible study, we hear inspiring stories, we read about what's going on up in the commons here, 10 blocks of the north, and hospitality ministries and ministries of giving dignity to people in addiction so that they can encounter Christ and face healing. And because we're here and because we give, we're like, this is what I do, right? And, and oh, kids are tutoring at Bagley? This is what I do. And there are wells in Africa? This is what I do. And it's a little bit like watching Rick Steves. And so what I want to, the thesis this evening is this. When we look at Acts 13, what we come to discover is that God is ascending God. God sent Christ, right? God to John 3.16, God so loved the world that he what? Sent. He sent his son. And so his son left this. He moved from here to there. So Christ comes and lives among us. And now because Christ is in us and because we're made in God's image and the image of God is to send and Christ was sent, we're sent. Every one of us in the room are sent. Not necessarily geographically, but hear this. I must be, on a pretty regular basis, on the move. Not necessarily geographically. It may be economic, it may be emotional, it may be social in different ways, but as God is pushing me to move from here to here, and if I resist movement, I'm, actually, I'm resisting discipleship. What I'm really doing then is I end up substituting a vicarious experience for the reality of discipleship. I should be hiking, I'm watching TV. So that's what we see in Acts 13, this is the real deal, and the real deal has certain facets that uh, happen every time, facets that are common to the experience of the sent ones, that's you and I. And what are those facets? Well, there are three that we look at this evening. First is what we discover. God's people are always called to distance and diversity. I'm called to distance, I'm called to move, and I'm called to move across boundaries and with people who are different than me, called to distance and diversity. Second, God's people will always encounter along the way in our journey detractors and disappointment. The journey's gonna be hard at various times. And third and finally, uh, God's people will experience death and resurrection because that's what would happen to Christ. So uh, distance and diversity, right? Uh, uh, detractors and disappointment and death and resurrection. Those, those three kind of facets of being a sent one. It's a map for us. All of us are sent. And so let's watch together as we go to Acts 13. Now the context here is if you've been with us, we're studying Acts and we see that the gospel came first to Jerusalem among people who are monotheistic, you know, believing in Jehovah. But now uh, in Christ, by virtue of the resurrection, they're aligning uh, their lives with the resurrected Jesus, asking Christ to actually live in them and his kingdom will become present all around the world. And so it starts in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, far across the world. And what we've seen so far in Acts, the gospel keeps pushing out. Boom, boom, you know, further and further. And so, you know, we have, we have uh, the Samaritans and then we have the Ethiopian, <laughs> the Ethiopian eunuch and, and then we have Paul, the guy who was, you know, Saul, who was, became Paul, killing Christians, and we just go further and further out. So, and now we come to this chapter, and uh, there's a big movement ultimately in this chapter 
uh, toward the broader Gentile community. But it begins here in verses 1 through 4 where we discover that sent people are called to distance and diversity. So watch with me. Acts chapter 13. If you have a Bible, read along if you would. And beginning in verse 1, this is just a great uh, verse that we don't want to pass too quickly. There were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. And who were they? Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manon, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, who would later be named Paul. So we're going to stop there, and I'm going to note that this is the piece saying that God's people are called to diversity, because this is a very diverse group of people. What you see in Acts 13.1 is this remarkably diverse group of people who, by virtue of their shared love of Christ, have been, they've been thrown together in the same city. And how did they end up here? Well, if you go back to Acts 11 and read verses 19 to 20, you understand that there was a great persecution in Jerusalem. The Jewish community kind of rose up, not in whole, but many who uh, had a stake in the traditional ways of doing things, rose up, persecuted the church in Jerusalem, the Christ followers, and they scattered and began to fan out all through the region, declaring the reality of Christ in new places. So some of them end up in Antioch, third largest city of the Roman Empire. It contains a large Jewish population. And so some of the people who ended up in Antioch, they, didn't, they weren't sent there as a team. They just kind of randomly ended up there. Uh, and at a human level, circumstantially ended up there. At a deeper level, God had put them together, but they're a very different group. These, just these names, <clears throat> very diverse. You have a black man from North Africa. Uh, you, you have a man brought up in the household of a king who was so paranoid uh, that he killed most of his family because he thought that they were a threat to his throne. He had his own mother murdered because he was afraid that she was going to steal the throne from him. And, and then uh, you have a guy with a reputation for killing Christians. That's Saul. And then you have Barnabas. I'm just going to stop and talk about Barnabas just for a minute this evening because Barnabas is kind of important. And here's why. What's interesting about Barnabas is that there's nothing interesting about Barnabas, okay? And here's what I mean. Uh, Barnabas ends up, he has a nickname later on in the scriptures, the son of encouragement, right? So Barnabas is this guy. Okay. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, he's upbeat, he's encouraging, the cup is always a little more than half full, you know, and if you're down and out, you know, Barnabas comes along and encourages you, and there's no record in Barnabas' life of any fantastic, remarkable testimony. All he is is an encourager. And the reason I just feel that that's worth mentioning is because, at least in my own upbringing, uh, which was terribly bland, I, I felt guilty not having a dramatic transformational story in my life. Does that, does that make sense? So I go to camp, and people share their testimonies. And, you know, you go to college, and especially, you know, you're in a, if you're in a Christian college or you're in university or wherever you are, and you go away, you share your testimony, your testimony story, whatever you, whatever you want to call it, you share this thing. And, and people have dramatic issues. You know, you know chemical addiction, Sexual addiction, abuse, broken families, financial meltdown, you know, terrible things. And then Christ has delivered them, and it's awesome. But then by the time it gets to me, it, I'm discouraged because I go, well, here's the deal. You know, grandparents, all of four of them, Christian. Parents, Christian. 
My grandmother worked at a Christian camp. I went there as a kid. I received Christ. I was baptized at 12. I swore a couple times in junior high. That's it. That's all I've got. <laughs> oh, next, you know. Boring. Boring. Barnabas is that guy. And there, here, I only mention it because some of you are Barnabas. Yeah, I tell you, look, if God's giving you the asset of a boring story, <laughs> it's a tremendous asset because you have the opportunity to be at, like, you, like you're, you're out front with a, with, you've been given much. I'll just say that, you've been given much. And to, to whom much is given, what? <laughs> to whom much is given, you should apologize and come up with a better story. No. To whom much is given, much is required. I mean, God has blessed you so you can be a blessing. And Bar- I think Barnabas is that one. And later on, there'll be this meltdown between the Apostle Paul and John Mark. And, uh, and Barnabas wants to be quick to forgive John Mark. And Paul says, no, you know, he let us down once. Boom, forget it. We're moving on without him. And, and there's a big debate. But Barnabas is the encouraging one. And some of you are encouraged. That's fine. But it's a, the larger point here, the very diverse group. And so to that point, this is what we discover here in this text. The family of faith is not made up of people just like you. Family of faith is made up of people who are bound together, not by politics, not by gender, not by nationalism, uh, not, by, not by race, not by economic uh, status, social status, education, homeowners or renters or homeless. No, what binds a community together from God's vision, the intent is to be the thing that binds us, the only thing that binds us together is a shared love of Christ. That's it, nothing else. Christ plus nothing equals basis for fellowship. And you look around the room and you may say, you know, we're not that diverse, and we're not in some ways. We've got a long ways to go. I get that, and it's true. And in other ways, we actually are diverse, and we have to recognize that and understand what's at stake and work hard to maintain the unity of the faith because we're still a diverse community. If it's not skin color, it's politics, it's theology. It's, it's socioeconomic status. When we lived in the mountains, we ran a house church, and a house church of, of like 30 people, it's, too, it's way too small to not know everyone and know everyone's politics and everyone's everything. And we had a thing in our church where uh, <laughs> we had a logger who's like, what he wanted to do was cut down as many trees as possible in the Cascades. And we had a... a a guy who counted spotted owls. Because if you could find a spotted owl, you could shut down that whole region from logging. And so, <laughs> do you understand? Radically different views on the environment, these two guys. <laughs> you know, chainsaw, <laughs> and then, <laughs> owl! <laughs> you know, and that was, that was them. And all week long, they're adversaries. All week, Monday through Friday, Saturday. And Sunday they come in and they're holding hands and they're lifting hands and they're worshiping. Why? Because we haven't sorted this out yet, but even though we haven't sorted this out, this is the one thing we know, we both love Jesus. And too often, here's what happens. I say, what? Logger? God-hater, right? What? Republican? God-hater. Or Democrat? God-hater. Or whatever is your view on sexuality? God-hater. And like, we dump, we back up the dump truck and we load all these judgments on a person because of a particular thing. And what Paul is saying here and what Jesus is saying through Acts 13 is, look, you are bound together by one thing only, Christ. And if that's the case, then sort it out. We have people, I mean, this is a mountain community, and we had people who would go hiking, and they're vegetarians, 
and they were careful not to ever trample any flowers, and they were like, leave the forest way cleaner than you ever found it. And there was another guy in our community who hiked with a gun, like a pistol, and he said, if I see anything in the bushes, I'm shooting first, and then asking questions later, right? Dead birds or whatever, boom! Very different. And yet, here's the one thing we all knew, we all loved Christ. So it's critical, I think, to understand if you're here at Bethany, that our vision is to be a diverse community. That's why we don't put political flyers in the back or tell you how to vote. And that's why you'll find, with just a very quick survey, different views on dispensationalism and different theological things and ethical things and sexual things. We don't agree on everything. But if you love Christ and you can say it and mean it, Jesus is Lord, then let's keep talking. Because that's what it means to be united. So this community is diverse. And then here's the other thing. They're called to distance and watch how they end up getting called. This is really fun. Verse 2. While they're ministering to the Lord and fasting, that's this very diverse group of four or five people, while they're ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit says, from this group, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then when they fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. <clears throat> so, uh, in the context of worship, including prayer and fasting, the community receives direction regarding the next step in mission for two particular people, right? So verses 2 and 3, let me make some observations. Number one, here's the first observation. The community receives guidance in the context of ministering to the Lord. In other words, this is what I find this really interesting. I'm not looking for guidance. I'm just worshiping. But in the context of, and I put this in quotes, the context of just worshiping, I'm just loving Christ. I'm, I'm worshiping. In the context of loving Christ, what happens? I find guidance. And here's why I think this is significant. Uh, we need to note that uh, in the context of serving and loving Christ, praying and worship, direction for next steps are offered from God and because of this, I hope you see that it's vital to move away from viewing God as a dispenser to whom you go when you have a need. Does this, does this make sense? Oh, I need guidance. Well, it's time to pray. Or, oh, I, you know, I'm sick, so God's my healer. Oh, I'm broke. God's my, you know, ATM. Come on, God, I'm broke now. I'm lonely. God's my companion. Well, I understand asking specific prayers in specific situations. However, uh, the testimony of Scripture overwhelmingly is this. God provides for us often all that we need in the context of worship and obedience. In other words, if I'm trusting God to take care of me, then I'm worshiping and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm listening for the voice of God and I'm obeying, I'm stepping out, and God is providing for me every step of the way. That's why Matthew 6 says, hey, why are you worried about tomorrow? Worried about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to major in, you know, if you're going to move, what you're gonna, what's going to happen when you graduate. Why are you worried? Don't worry. Seek the kingdom of God and God will take care of you. It'll happen. What you need, God knows what you need. God will do God will deliver you. You do one thing, and the one thing you're called to do, Deuteronomy chapter 6, what's the deal? Uh, look, hero is where the Lord your God is one, and you shall what? Pray for guidance? No. Like the calling. When you boil everything down in the Bible, there's two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. That's it. That's your calling. And so in the context of loving God, God will provide for what you need, including guidance. And then 
The other interesting thing about this particular set of guidance is this. God says to the community, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And I'm just going to note here that very often in a highly individualistic society such as ours, it's tempting to think that when I need guidance, God is going to speak directly to me. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I needed guidance, and so I prayed, and God gave me guidance. Well, like what if you're in a community, and, and the community is interwoven enough and you trust the community enough to allow God to speak to you through the community. How amazing would that be? That's God's intent in the church. And when it happens, uh, it's both remarkable and annoying, right? It's annoying because as soon as someone speaks a word into my life that I don't want to hear, I immediately say, who do you think you are speaking into my life? But it's remarkable because when when someone speaks into my life and then that word is confirmed by the testimony of yet another witness, I go, God has spoken here. Like, I didn't make this up. This is amazing when this happens. And I ended up at Bethany, as some of you know my story, because some guy in India is having breakfast with me and longer story than the moment, he drops his fork at one point and says, God wants you to be the pastor of Bethany Community Church. And I said to him, you're crazy. I don't want to be pastor of Bethany Community Church. And besides... Are you Pentecostal? Does God here speak to you for me? Like if God wants me to know, God will tell me. And what I've learned in the subsequent 20 years is this. God does speak to me. How? Through you, through the community. That's how God speaks. Because just two years after that word in India, uh, I spoke here and then a guy calls me on the phone and says, uh, we, the search committee, we think God may want you to be the pastor of Bethany Community Church. Would you apply? And that's how God brings guidance, right? Through the testimony of a couple of people. And so here, there's prayer. And now, these two know that they're sent. But that's the good news. One of the things that's annoying in the text is this. All that they know is that they're sent out. That's all, that's all God says. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul uh, for the work to which I've called them. And then they... Uh, they had fasted and prayed, and then they laid their hands on them, and they sent them away. What? What? In other words, let me be clear here. They don't know where they're going. All they know is they're no longer welcome in this community. Is that amazing? Hey, because we love you, please leave. And, and oh, where are we going? Where do you, where do you think? God, we don't know. We just know. Here's what we know. God's will for you, not here. Now, go. That's this message. Oh, how long are we going to be gone? We don't know. What's the strategy? Strategy? We don't even know the goal, let alone the strategy. This is all we know. The Spirit has spoken. You're to go out. God's going to guide you. And so, being sent out, verse 4, by the Holy Spirit, they went. They went. The Celtic saints, some of them would get in these little boats and they would pray and, and then they would just, they'd get in the boat and let the waves take them. And when they land on an island, that's it. That's where they're called. It's faith. We don't always know. So, so um, pretty important here. When we're talking about wanting guidance from God, I find it so interesting. They lay hands on them and sent them out without telling them where or for how long or with what kind of strategy. So just to summarize this section, let's think about this. If you're not getting guidance from God in your life, some first final questions are these. Like, what are you you actually wanting? Are you wanting guidance or God? 
Because if the goal is guidance, as, then you're using God. Are you wanting healing or God? Provision or God? Are you wanting, uh, do you want to know the full story of God's will? And then you can decide, like you can do a cost-benefit analysis. Like, oh, God, I see. You want to do this and go there and live there and be there for that long. And I'm going to get sick along the way. And then I'll lose my job. Let me think about that. Do I see what I want to sign up? Is that what you want? You won't get that. You're in a covenant relationship with your creator. That's discipleship. And the beauty of this is we have an analogy in human existence. It's marriage. Who's married in the room? Raise your hand if you're married. Some of you are married. Are you guys married? Yeah. How long have you guys been married? Eight months. Okay. I love that. Eight months. 37 years, right? And my, my youngest daughter just got married two weeks ago. Of course, that's why I wasn't here two weeks ago. So she got married, and I, this is so funny. I love this. I'm sitting there. I do this all the time now because I've been married so long. When it comes, you know, they're holding hands like this, and then you hear this stuff. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, right? And, he, and then my son-in-law, now Chris, he said those words. <sighs> And then Holly, my daughter, she said those words. Look, I will, be, I will stick with you for better and worse, for richer and poorer, in sickness and in health. And while they're saying that, do you know what I'm thinking? I'm, this one I'm thinking, you have no idea what you're talking about right now. <laughs> and I don't mean it in any evil way, in no pejorative way. They just can't possibly know what will happen in the next 37 years. They can't know. So they're not committing to a, like a better life. They're not coming to a better life. They're coming to a person. Do you understand what I'm saying here? That's a covenant relationship. That's what a covenant does. A covenant says, you know, come on, we're glued together now, and so where you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. For, you know, the highs, the lows, the rich, the poor, and they, they just don't know. If I would have said to my wife, uh, on the front end, the life that we ended up actually living, I don't think she would have said yes. <laughs> right? She said... I mean, when we were just friends, you know, eating crab legs in the dorm together, she said, uh, boy, you know, I don't want to be a pastor's wife. I said, yeah, I, w- I wouldn't want to be a pastor either. What a dumb job, you know, who wants to do that? <laughs> so, like, when we got married, there was no plan to be a pastor. And, and then once you are a pastor, uh, you know, poverty is one of the perks of being a pastor. And so for a long time, you know, we're living be- below the poverty line, and then I, I went to seminary in Los Angeles, and one thing my wife said was, I'll tell you what, I'll live anywhere in the world, just never Los Angeles. Then we got married, we ended up, so we ended up in L.A., pastor's wife, living in poverty. Yeah, I'm in. No. Discipleship is this. I'm committing to you. And so uh, if you're going to follow Christ, then you're going to follow Christ, wherever he takes you. And I have a friend who, uh, you know, he, he went to Iraq and was teaching in a school there, and a student came in and, and killed him at the age of 24. And I have other friends who, who uh, preached Christ on six continents until they died in their 90s. We don't write the script. We just attach ourselves to the person of Jesus and go, right? So, so that's this thing here about distance, and all this has to, we all must go, but we don't go to go, we go because the wind of the Holy Spirit has spoken, and as we'll see in a moment, 
the going doesn't, it's not just about um, distance. It may not be distance at all. It may be an emotional chasm you need to cross or something like that. So that's the first thing. This, this sense of diversity, that's our community, and, and a, a call. The wind of the Spirit causes us to move. Second, this is what we find, along the way, we encounter detractors and disappointment. And so verses 14 to 49 are this very long account of uh, what happens when Paul and his team arrive in a different Antioch. There's two Antiochs in Acts 13, so it can be a little confusing, but they leave one Antioch, they go to the other one, and when they arrive there, here's what happens. They begin preaching in the synagogue, and the synagogue is where the Jewish community gathers to worship, and they're explaining in the synagogue how the history of Israel points to the coming of Christ as Messiah, Jesus as Messiah. And by the end of the sermon, what you discover in verses 42 and 43 of Acts 13, as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. In other words, they wanted to hear more, right? And so uh, uh, the next Sabbath, when they gather, verse 44, it says nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. So that's good too. So like the people interested in hearing about Messiah, the crowd is growing so that by the night, this, in the city of Antioch, it says the whole city gathers, they want to hear. They want to hear about Jesus. But then, here's a bad news. It's in the very next little section here. Uh, but when the Jews saw the crowds, it says they were filled with jealousy. Now, not all the Jews, but in particular what we're looking at here is the Jewish establishment. In other words, the people uh, who are... Uh, whose livelihood and identity and sphere of influence is tied to worship in the synagogue and tied really to the waiting for the coming Messiah, right? And so now a new community is arising over here and it's like it's beginning to drift away from the centrality of the synagogue and the new community is saying, look, uh, we're not waiting for Messiah anymore. Messiah's come. And by the way, uh, as we saw uh, with the centurion a, a couple of weeks ago and and Peter and the sheet coming out from heaven and all that stuff. We, 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 oh, here's the other thing we see. Ah, uh, our relationship with the law is changing as well. So now, I'm, like my, I'm making my living by preserving the synagogue and the law. And here's a group that says, because Jesus has come, look, now we are the temple. We don't need the temple anymore. We don't need the synagogue anymore. Our relationship with the law is changing. And these people understand quite well that their sphere of influence is not just shrinking, like it's at risk of dying completely. And so it says here, they were filled with what? Jealousy. Now, <laughs> very important moment because it, it, like it reveals to us one source of resistance to the gospel that's in all of us. And, and, and the surface issue in this case is, is jealousy, but it's not the real issue. Here's the real issue. The real issue for all of us is when God calls me to move from here to here, to move from here to here, Almost always I let go of something. Do you understand? I can't move without letting go. So if I'm going to move into generosity, I've got to let go of my money. If I'm going to move into sexual purity, I have to let go of my sexual autonomy. If I'm going to move into community, I have to open my arms. If I'm going to move away from bitterness, I have to move into forgiveness. But I can't carry, I can't carry bitterness with me into forgiveness. I can't carry greed with me into generosity. Whenever God calls me to move, there's loss along the way every time. And if I, if I say to Jesus, look, I want to follow you. I just want to bring all my stuff with me. Jesus said, look, no, come to me if you're weary, if you're weighed down with guilt, addiction, shame, fear, loneliness, you're burnt out on religion, 
Come, here's Jesus' words, Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you. In other words, let go of your baggage and carry what I give you only. My yoke is what? Easy. My burden? Light. Follow me. <laughs> I'll set you free. And then we're like this. Yeah, no thanks. I want to keep my sphere of influence, my upward mobility, my career intact, my geographical autonomy, my sexual autonomy, my broken relationships. I want that plus Jesus. Here's Jesus. Nope. <laughs> you want to follow me, uh, you got to let go. The gospel will cost these leaders of the synagogue. It will mean for them the end of their livelihood. When they resist the truth, what they're resisting is loss of power, prestige, position, autonomy, because they have a stake in the status quo, like the railroad in 1905 when the automobile is being introduced, right? If you know a little history, the railroad people went to, you know, went to Congress and said, no, these, don't let these things happen. Why? Look, our sphere of influence is at risk. If you've seen the movie Concussion, it's the same thing with NFL executives. Too much at stake, man. We've got power here. That's why ending racism is hard or changing our consumer habits or undoing oppressive economic structures. It's why there's four million refugees roaming the planet right now. Because we're all shocked at what goes on, but we also have a world that we're seeking to maintain. And many of us are resisting moving into the role that God wants us to play in bringing deliverance uh, to the broader world. So part of the message of this text is that God is calling all of us in the room to continual repentance, calling us to align our lives with the truth of God's reign and ethic, calling us to move from here to here. And when I move, I have to shed some stuff if I'm going to move. I have to. The indictment of the Pharisees is embedded in uh, the sermon that Paul gives, like in verse 27, harking back to Jerusalem. Paul says, those who lived in Jerusalem at the time that Jesus died, they didn't recognize Jesus as Messiah. They didn't recognize that the utterances of the prophets, which they read every Sabbath, were pointed to Jesus. They didn't know it. And they read uh, prophecies about a suffering Messiah, and they put Jesus to death. And they, the whole time, they fulfilled the prophecies of Isaiah, but they didn't even know that the one that they were crucifying was a Messiah. Why? Their eyes were so blind, this group of people condemned Jesus to die, and the group that condemned Jesus to die were people who read the Scriptures pointing to Christ, and they read them every Sabbath. They knew the text. They knew the stories. They, they, they ostensibly knew God. They were monotheistic, zealous, devout, knew their Bibles, but missed the person, Christ. They had everything, but when Christ, Jesus walked right in the room, they were so embedded in the religious system that when it came down to it, they wanted to protect the system. More, that became more important to them than their own transformation. <laughs> and I'll just tell you, this terrifies me. Because, like, if you're a leader of a growing evangelical organization, it's very easy to begin to say, boy, what a protect, you know, what's happening here. And what a risk in the name of protection that we would ever stop moving. Are you hearing me? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's all, let's not, you know, let's not upset No, no, you know, let's not talk about that issue because that could be divisive. Hey, wait a minute. If God is calling us to move, we need to move. That's just the way it is. 
And if I'm going to continue to grow as a disciple of Christ, I will continue to move. And I hope you will too. There's theological movement. There's financial movement. There's relational movements, like I need to move into embrace. I need to move into forgiveness. I need to move into purity. There's movement. I need to move toward my neighbors. I need to move within my workplace to be a person of blessing rather than just my nose to the grindstone, you know, getting my job done so I can go home and be with my Christian friends. I need to move. Maybe you need to move too. And if God is calling you to any kind of movement and you don't move, then, then suddenly you're watching TV rather than being in the Alps. <laughs> and, and your faith is at risk of becoming vicarious. You know the text. You know the stories. You sit in the pew. You listen. I do the same thing, but there's no reality to it unless I'm moving. That's why movement is all through the scriptures. Abraham, on the move. Jacob, on the move. Israel, on the move. Acts 13 now, here's, these, here's you know, Saul and Barnabas, go! <laughs> and they're on the move. And from here to the end of the book of Acts, these guys are going to be on the move. In Numbers chapter 9, God is making a very important point to the nation of Israel when they're in the wilderness. This is what he says. He says, look, when, when the Spirit moves, you have to move. You're out in the desert. When the Spirit moves, you have to move. Read it sometime, Numbers 9. And the way that God says it in Numbers 9 is funny. It's, there's humor in it. Because God is like, this is what God does. And I'm paraphrasing, so you read it. You'll see the more accurate translation. But, but God says, there's a cloud that will guide you by day, fire by night. And when the cloud or the fire moves, you move. Now, that should be enough, right? When the cloud moves, you move. Implied subtext, when the cloud doesn't move, you don't move. Does God move on? No. He spends a whole chapter saying that 10 different ways. If the cloud, so, you got it? Yes, we got it. And then God continues. If the cloud should stay but for a day and then move, you shall stay but for a day and then move. Got it. And then God continues. If the cloud should stay for a week and three days, you should stay for a week and three days. And then when the cloud moves, you should not stay. <laughs> you should move. If you move and the cloud stays, you should not move. You should stay. Over and over again, the same thing. Why? Here's what God is saying. Look, <laughs> God is on the move so that we will move. And when we move, then we are continuing to remain in the stream of God's activity, God's spirit. But when the spirit moves and you don't move, or when the spirit is calling you to move and you say, no, I'm staying here, then here's the tragedy. Are you saved? Yes. No Christ? Yes. Are you living into the reality of that? I don't know. Your heart is filled with dissonance because God's calling you to move in some arena and you're saying no. <laughs> and so here's the last thing. Uh, they gather on the next Sabbath day. The whole town turns out. As you've already seen, there's this jealousy thing going. Uh, and, and so when the Gentiles heard Paul say, uh, God is bringing salvation to the whole earth, uh, verse 48, the Gentiles were rejoicing. Uh, and the word of the Lord is being spread throughout the region. But then look at verse 50. The religious leaders called her the Jews, 
incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city, instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out. They, Paul and Barnabas, shook the dust off their feet in protest and went to Iconium. And then the punchline of the chapter is hysterical. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Now, do you understand? Like, why is that crazy? Because here's what just happened. I preached in a community like this on a, on a Saturday. A week later, the whole town was crowded in. I preached again, and, and it was so threatening that uh, dissension arose, and like a kind of a riot breaks out. I'm driven not just out of the city. I'm driven out of the region I'm for, so that I can't preach anywhere in the region anymore. And so what do I do? I shake the dust off my shoes, and we'll talk about that in a minute, and I move on, and as I move on, I'm what? I'm filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. That's not how I would have finished the sentence, right? They were persecuted immensely, and so I was filled with a desire to prove them wrong, or I was filled with a desire to get even, or I was filled with a fear that the same thing's going to happen in the next region, and so I became anxious. Or I was filled with bitterness, and I withdrew and quit. But no, they were filled with joy. Why were they filled with joy? The key to the joy, it's very interesting, the joy is tied, actually, to shaking the dust off their shoes. Now, what does that even mean, shaking the dust off your shoes? Well, I'm glad you asked. We don't do this much anymore. But if you go hiking sometimes, you actually, you literally do this. You get in from a day of hiking, and you walk into the main living area, and your wife looks at your shoes, and she says, get out of here right now, and take those shoes off, and then you let them dry, right? And then what do you do? Once they're dry, have you, who's done this? Yeah, you guys know it. You bang your shoes together. Don't you do that? And then what happens? All the junk on your shoes, you know, it flies away. Now it's good for the new hike. Do you know what that is? It's like there's a, there's a moment here saying, I did it. I re- there were, in this case, there was resistance. I did it. It's over. It's over. I'm moving on. In other words, let me translate this for you. I will not be defined by, by, by my past. Do I have a past? I have a past. You have a past. But uh, look, what, a, the, what part of the power of the gospel is this? I don't need to be defined by my past. God can use my past, but there isn't a person in the room, there is not a person in the room who does not have the capacity by virtue of the resurrected Christ in you for a redeemed, transformed story <laughs> so that you can be a person of blessing, not defined by your past. It, so there's this sense here for the disciples. We did the right thing. It was hard. It didn't turn out the way we'd hoped. We're moving on. No poisonous introspection. Oh, you know, no bitterness. No, no sense in the next village. Man, if we don't do it this time, what's going to happen? No fear. No, it's over. I don't need to be governed by the past. I don't need to fear the future. The future. Instead, I can simply reduce my life to a full enjoyment of the present moment that is rooted in a rest 
that God is with me, that God will guide me, that the Holy Spirit has led me to this point. The Holy Spirit will lead me tomorrow. And everything that I need, God will provide. This can only happen when I'm living in the present because I have no control over tomorrow and I have no control over yesterday. The only moment that is mine is this one. This is the day that the Lord has made. In this day, I'll rejoice. In this day, I'll serve. In this day, I'll say yes to the Holy Spirit. In this day, I'll love and I will be open to the future wherever the wind of the Spirit would guide me, but I'm not going tomorrow, today, because today is today. And I'm set free. (laughs) And we can all be. Matthew 6. Why are you worried about tomorrow? Can't control it. Acts 13. Why are you worried about what happened in Antioch? You're not in Antioch anymore. You're in Iconium. Why are you worried about how you were behaving in Portland? Who cares how you were in Portland? It's not Portland, this is Seattle. It's not San Diego, it's Seattle. It's not Fresno, it's Seattle. New day. It's not yesterday, it's today. You're free. But if that freedom is to turn into the reality and joy of discipleship, you have have to say yes to God. Wherever God is guiding you, the preemptive answer is yes. Why? Because this isn't a contract where God lays out all the terms and you sign, there's a covenant. It's a covenant. You going with me? That's what Jesus says. You going with me? And I know you. Well, where are are we going? Jesus, tell me. And Jesus laughs. Ha! I don't even know. If I knew, I wouldn't tell you. I just want relationship. You going with me? Covenant. Say yes. When we come to this table... It's a table of covenant because this is what Jesus is saying. You don't have the strength to go where I'm sending you. So I'm giving you my very life. Partake of all that I am. Allow me to be strength in your weakness. Then when the wind of the Spirit blows, I will carry you in obedience. Strength for the journey. It's right here, the bread the body of Christ. And Jesus said also on the night that he was betrayed, sharing this meal, this is the blood of the covenant. Not the blood of the contract, the blood of the covenant. What's significant about the blood of the covenant? Well, Jesus is saying to us, like a marriage, you won't keep your vows perfectly, but there will be grace. And when we fail, know this. This is the blood of the covenant shed for you and for many. For what? The forgiveness of sin. You blown it? Welcome. Me too. Strength. Forgiveness. In order that the wind of the Holy Spirit would fill our sails. And we will be on the move. Opening our arms. Opening our hearts. Opening our wallets. Opening our our calendars moving to new nations. Wherever God sends you, the answer preemptively, the answer, yes. Why? Because you are in Christ. Come, worship, celebrate, declare that you are in him. Bread, strength, wine, forgiveness, grape juice, by the way, forgiveness, the covenant. If you would, please travel counterclockwise through these sections. If you need gluten-free bread, they're in the dark blue baskets. Father, meet us now at your table. 
There are adventures yet to be lived in this room, individually and collectively, unknown to us. And we won't know until we're there. But we'll say yes tonight. And we'll say uh, with uh, Naomi in the Old Testament and Ruth, uh, where you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. Where you go, I'll go. Be our guide, Father. We pray in the name of Christ who is our hope. Amen. Let's worship together.